Thanks for listening to Inside the Crime. You'll soon hear from several of those closest to the case and help remind you of who they are and what their connections are. We've built an interactive family tree on our website where you can learn more about the key figures in this story. You'll also find an easy to follow interactive map of Porterstown Lane as it appeared in 1971 with all the key locations clearly marked out with handy explainers. You'll find it all at newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. Now, back to the podcast. In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we went inside the courtroom for the Unilinsky murder trial. The theatrics of the whole thing, the fingers in the lapel, it was all this, you know, my lord and my learned friend and all that. Lots of witnesses corroborated Martin and Dick's version of events that they couldn't have been on Porterstown Lane when Una was abducted. But the jury didn't believe them. And while they were cleared of murder, both were jailed for her manslaughter. When the verdict came out, it just, everything went blank. I'm guilty, oh Jesus Christ, and he fell through the seat. In this, the final episode of this season of Inside the Crime, we'll look at what happened after the two friends were sent to prison. You know what he did? He got on with his life. He got on with his life as best he could. And with Una's murder still unsolved, over 50 years later, we'll ask if there's any hope of finding her actual killer. We know it's not over. We know there's an ending out there. Given the sanctity of the jury room, we may never know why Martin Conmey and Dick Donnelly were found guilty of Una Linsky's manslaughter. But if the jurors accepted Martin's signed confession, then he should be treated as the least culpable of the three amigos. At least that's what his barrister argued. At his sentence hearing, his character was described as exemplary. And while pleading for leniency for his client, Dick's barrister asked Mr Justice Seamus Henshey to temper justice with mercy. In terms of culpability, the prosecutor saw things differently and urged the judge not to distinguish between them on that front. From the evidence, he argued that one was just as guilty as the other. As we now know, Martin and Dick were both sentenced to three years' penal servitude. That's three years in jail to you and I. Understandably, especially given their innocence, the lads found it hard to adjust to prison life as Martin now remembers. The prison officers were okay. It's just been, it's just been locked up. Been conf- you know, every evening we'd be locked up about those words, half seven or something, and slapping out then, because then with your pot as they call it, heading down. and it just been locked up for something we didn't do. That was, I, I, I couldn't accept that, you know. It was getting to me, well, you're, look what you're accused of. She was taking someone's life, a person you never even see. And, and then I'd go back and say, well, it's your own fault, Martin. I said, I kept knocking myself. You know, it wasn't my fault. I couldn't help it. You know, I kept blaming myself for being weak and making statements when something never happened. Then sometimes people would say to you, I was about it. Yeah, well, they never say it to me. I just hear that people saying, so how could you make a statement or something never happened? Why would you do that? Just from my position and trim, it would be a different story. 
As soon as Martian and Dick were jailed, their lawyers moved to appeal their convictions. Their arguments were heard within months, and in the end, Dick Donnelly's conviction was overturned. After living under a cloud of suspicion for so long, he was now a free man. Martian, on the other hand, was going nowhere. His false confession once again came back to haunt him. The court found nothing wrong with his conviction, and with that door now closed, he had nowhere else to turn. Dick's wife, Anne, who was still mourning the loss of her beloved brother, Marty Kerrigan, says Dick's release was bittersweet. He was in prison for maybe six or eight weeks, awaiting to get the appeal. Were you able to see him in prison? Yeah. How was that? Well, he was just hoping that that they would be, that they'd get the appeal over and done with and that he'd get out. But he was hoping that Martin would get out as well. That didn't happen. Dick got out, but Martin didn't. How was Dick after coming out? Did he feel like he was able to move on with his life or was it something that stuck with him for a long time afterwards? But you know what he did? He got on with his life. He got on with his life as best he could. As devastated as he was by his own lack of success, Martian was delighted to see Dick's conviction overturned. He always imagined the two of them walking out the gates of Mountjoy Prison together, but it wasn't to be. Despite his obvious delight for his old pal, Martian missed him terribly. Alone in his small cell at night, he just kept looking at his drawings of home, which he'd plastered all over the walls, small windows into his former life. On those lonely nights, Porterstown Lane felt like a million miles away. But it wasn't long before he struck up an unlikely friendship that saw him through those dark days. He was in for bank fraud. He was lovely. Like he was, we, he got his own clothes to wear because he couldn't stand the same as myself. After a while, I didn't want to be stuck in them out grey prison clothes. And we used to go in there and we used to console each other. Well, he was very nice to me. Now I told him the whole story and. He said, do you know what we do? Because he was, he seemed to be very intelligent. But we started dictating a letter with my help to, it was Mary Robinson. I don't know what she was at then. And a long letter, but we, I think we done it and gave it to the prison authorities. But I don't know whether it was sent or not or trying to help help me. You know, but Tom was very, very, very nice. Just just sitting in there talking to me. He said, when you close that door, look at them yokes going up and down there. He says, you know, and I, we were sitting in there talking for ages. And I just tried to get in then. I tried to get into the, it was the printing shop in there. And I tried to get in because it, it, rather than just walking around the yard with these other fellas, you know, I didn't just like that. I just wanted to get away. It, and, and then I got, wanted to get into the church and, and just help clean in the church and that. Just something that felt like you were outside, you know. Understandably, Martin was incredibly homesick. He missed everyone and everything. His only reminders of home were his dreams and his drawings. Back on Porterstown Lane, his family also longed for his release. His sister Mary felt they too were being punished. I was writing a diary and I'd applied for a job and mum and dad had brought me into town to go for the interview and that. And they were visiting Martin on the way out. So I do visit, I write about it. I said something like, he, he does not look good, but I have absolutely no memory of that visit. 
but it was very difficult working then as well because the bus passed Manchai. So twice a day I had to pass Manchai. I had my freedom, I had a job, I had money, I had a boyfriend, I was going out. And you could see the prison much better that time, like that's built up around it. And just have to look in there every day and know the pattern was in there. It was just, it was. That's a hard journey to make at all, let alone twice a day, mm, every day. Twice a day. Yeah. You'd see that twice a day. <sighs> Only three people were allowed to visit Martin in Mountjoy Prison. His parents and a girl he was doing a line with at the time. His mum and dad called every Tuesday. And while Martin used to count down the days until he'd see them, Tuesdays were also tinged with sadness because he knew they'd be leaving without him. Every Tuesday I remember them coming in. Oh, fuck, sorry. That's okay, take your time. Oh, it's it's terrible to watch her coming in. She'd be smiling, you know. Keep up hope. She says, somewhere we do something or something, something will crop up or the truth will come out. And she was smiling and so we couldn't even touch each other, you know. Did you look forward to those visits? Mm. You did? But it was hard when they left. It's hard. Jeez, it was terrible. Like I said, she, she just turned her back and I knew she was crying. It's okay, my goodness. You're doing remarkably well. If you want to take a break, just shout. Oh, no, I, just, I knew that part would get me. And how about your dad? Would he chat too much on the no, Tuesdays? No, man was the one that you know, all the talk. She was kind of keep her spirits up and we, we do what we can. And God is good and all this, you know. She says, something will come out with this. And was just living in hope as all I was doing, you know. Just had to get on. There's a living on letters to you send in as well and support. Letter from my aunt, my mother's sister. And we all know and everyone believes that you had nothing to do with it. And that's, you hold your head up high, but that wasn't much. It was a consolation, but it wasn't much good to me locked up in there, you know, looking at people going up and down the North Circular Road on this Saturday evening and yeah. locked in here for something they didn't do. The mundane daily grind of prison life took its toll on Martin. If he had killed Unalinsky, he'd have learned to live with his punishment. But when he knew he hadn't, every single day felt like a life sentence. That said, Martin was a model prisoner. He put his head down and kept out of trouble. As the end of his sentence approached, he was moved to Shelton Abbey, an open prison on the north bank of the Avoca River near Arklow in County Wicklow. And in 1975, having served his time for a crime he didn't commit, Martin was released early on good behaviour. Jeez, I don't know who collected me or did I have to... I think my dad came in, yeah, it was a phone box. No, I think, I don't even know if he was told I was getting out, honest to God, because I was just, just glad to get out of that place. It's just the freedom, I just felt, it felt great. But then afterwards, then, you know, you start thinking, oh, Jesus, I'm accused of killing someone I never seen. 
when it was approaching the end of your sentence, were you a little bit wary of going back into the community or did you feel like I've done nothing wrong and I've served my time for a crime I didn't commit? Mm. And I mean, how was it kind of settling back into the community in Portistown after that? And I, I, it felt okay because the feeling we were getting, that everyone, most people around, even like Gawhan Park's mother and father, were very, very supportive. Only for them, I, I don't think I had to survive getting through this, but they were very, very comforting. And that helped helped me an awful lot, you know, that they, they believed us. I was conscious of myself and paranoid about making the statements, and I was very conscious of what people would be saying. And I never got any bad feedback, only certain things you might hear from someone, and someone might say, like, oh, shit, there's no smoke without fire. They must, they must have something got to do with it, you know? Didn't they admit to it, you know? This kind of a thing. And I, times I used to take it serious. And other times people would say, well, look, at people are entitled to their opinion. Let them say that. But most people were very supportive. But it was just, life was torture. Just living every, every day when I got out, just trying to survive, you know? It was difficult getting through every day. I think, yeah, serious. Times and I just contemplated in the all. I used to remember going to work, getting up in the morning, crying, and out to work. In work, crying, and I often remember some lads looked at me, and I was driving at the JCB at the time, and you see this fellow inside me crying in the machine, you know. But that was it. Was cruel just getting through, trying to live life, saying I'm accused of this. It was like I felt as nothing could be done. I just had to live with this the rest of my life. You know, every bloody day, every weeks and months and years went by and it was the same thing. Despite being relieved to once again have his freedom, Martin really struggled to adjust to life outside the prison walls. Understandably, he just couldn't leave the past behind. He and those closest to him knew he'd been the victim of a great injustice, but there were others who weren't so sure. No smoke without fire, as he said himself. To Manny, he was a convicted killer and he felt the rest of his life would be defined by what he did or more to the point, what he didn't do. And then, out of the blue, something happened that would once again turn his whole world upside down. Martin fell in love. How are you? I don't understand. And how are you, Martin? Hi, Ashley. Nice to meet you. How are you? Frank is my name, Nice to meet you. Yeah. Your kitchen is fab. Beautiful. Yeah, gorgeous. Oh, it's fab. It really is gorgeous. Behind every great man is a great woman. And as we chat to Martin at his kitchen table, his wife Anne is seated behind him on a comfortable looking couch. Is it okay to the table? From time to time, Martin swivels in his chair to check something with her mostly dates, some more important than others. So that was, we got married, was we got married, uh, A3, <laughs> disaster here. Yeah, A3, we got married and... Uh, Is that right? Uh, <laughs> 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 Don't ask me what day the bird. I could see the sweat rolling down the forehead there. <laughs> I'm a joke, so I'm going to come to that. Jeez. Well, look, you got, you got, that's an important date. You got that one right. Anyway, <laughs> it was it, then I, I think Ray was born in eighty nine, wasn't he? 
strange thing. He was born, and he was, I was supposed to say he was born the same day we got married. No, he was born. <laughs> Busy awesome. day. What's the thing about it at the fourth? Well, there are six wedding anniversaries born. Marcia may have needed a little nudge there, but as Anne points out, their son Ray was born on their sixth wedding anniversary. It was 1989, 14 years after he left prison. With Anne and Ray now in his life, Martian found the strength to go on, but he still couldn't shake the feeling that people associated him with what happened to Una Linsky. I was free, but as a saying goes, I wasn't free, my mind wasn't free. It was playing in my mind day in, day out, just how can I live with this? And, and um, I couldn't, it was just, it was hell. Every day was hell and I was just, going around the road at night when I come in here and I, I was hard to live with and I tell you that I would, especially if I got a few drinks paranoia and I was serious and um, crying all the time and just Jesus wouldn't that be a, a lovely escape from all this you know and then I, I when Ray was born in 89 then I, I, what actually kept me going was been married and Anne and Ray, I says, I can't, I can't do Anne to myself. I, what am I leaving behind me? He said, just, he used to look at Ray there sitting in the cot or in the pram there, just around here. No, I says, I have to be strong for him. You know, that's what kept me going. I say if I wasn't married and didn't have Ray and my son, I'd be, I probably wouldn't be here today. And that's the truth. Honest to God. I wouldn't be able to live. I couldn't, I couldn't live Blame myself for making statements and being blamed for taking a girl's life. Aside from Ray's birth, something else happened in 1989 that would have a profound impact on the rest of Martin's life. In 1975, the same year Martin finished his sentence, the so-called Guildford Four were convicted at the Old Bailey in London for a crime they too hadn't committed. These bombings were part of a horrendous terrorist campaign on the mainland in which altogether 37 people were murdered and some 400 were injured. The previous year, at the height of the Troubles in Northern Ireland, the IRA blew up two pubs in Guildford, a town in West Surrey in England. And so, without warning, in the autumn of 1974, the provisional IRA struck at the heart of the home county, at Guildford in Surrey. Four British soldiers and a civilian were killed in those blasts, with many more wounded. Jerry Conlon was one of those wrongly blamed. Like Martin, he was also just 20 years of age when his nightmare began. He had moved to England from Belfast in search of work. He and the others made false confessions after a period of intense and prolonged police interrogation. Conlon later insisted the police had tortured him. At their trial, the judge told them that if hanging were still an option, he'd have them executed. Instead, he sentenced each of them to life in prison. However, following long, hard-fought campaigns for justice, the Guildford Four were fully vindicated. Martin's son Ray was just six months old when Jerry Conlon marched out the front door of the old Bailey, having had his conviction overturned.
Ray was uh, lying there in, in, a, in a pram. The television came on and, and Jerry Condon, Guilford Four. I'm an innocent man. I remember him saying that. I'm an innocent man. I spent 15 years in prison. My father died in prison for something he didn't do. I just started crying. I looked at Ray. Can't talk about this now. I just looked at him and said, Sense. I started coursing, didn't it? That's what got me going. I didn't stop. I did nothing. I didn't stop then. I just kept going. I know it's, it was a difficult moment, but a magical moment too, to be looking at Jerry Conlon. And were you looking at Jerry Conlon and thinking, look, if he yeah. can, yeah. If he can I get said, his thing I could see myself behind him. I could see me and him, you know. That's, and I said, Jesus, I'm doing something. I said, I can't live any longer with this. I'm doing it for Ray. Unlike Martin, Jerry Conlon was now a free man in the truest sense of the word. Not only had he shaken off the shackles that held him in an English prison for 15 years, but the whole world now knew that he had done no wrong. Listening to his impassioned cries, Martian felt inspired. With tears in his eyes, he watched Ray cooing in the corner. The innocence, he thought. He dreaded the day he'd have to tell Ray his story. And in that moment, as shots of a triumphant Jerry Conlon were being beamed into his living room, Martian vowed to once again take on the might of the state. Little did he know it would prove to be his toughest battle to date. Hi Frank, how are you? Deirdre, how's it going? Into the lion's den. Very nice to meet you. You do realise it's donkey's ears since it's like, it was like going back to school. I'm in the offices of Talon's solicitors overlooking the River Boyne in the heart of Drogheda. I'm here to meet Deirdre Moran. Deirdre is now a well-established partner at the firm, but when Martin's case landed on her desk back in 1997, she was just starting out, having graduated only a few years beforehand. Martin initially went to our Ashburn office to see Sheila Cooney, who is the managing partner of both firms, and she has immensely good instincts for cases and knew that this was a very important case to take on, despite the fact that it was 23 years from the original case and the manslaughter. And she had faith in Martin from day one that he was innocent. She passed the file over to me in 1997 and she filled me with the enthusiasm that she had um, in relation to the matter, despite the fact that it was going to be a very daunting case to take on. After having an epiphany, watching Jerry Conlon on TV back in 1989, you might be wondering why it took so long for Martian to walk into Talon's solicitors. But the truth is, back then, it would have been pointless. He'd already challenged his conviction and lost, so there were no further avenues of appeal open to him. And then, over 20 years later, a new law was introduced that allowed for cases to be revisited if new evidence came to light. Game on, Martin thought. He just needed to find that elusive piece of evidence that would give him another shot at clearing his name. And that's when a chain-smoking car salesman turned private investigator called Billy Flynn came into his life. 
Yeah, it was actually Dick heard about him somewhere. So we went to Billy, and that was hope. Billy was, we always looked forward then in the middle of the time. We were with him for about, was it a year, maybe or more? I don't know, a long time, anyway. But we used, he, used, he was a great man to write a letter. And we just know it was right when I come on the front, there's big long scribbles and oh geez, just a letter from Billy with some good news. Now we be all everyone was began used to be looking forward to those as we spend ages reading it. and if it was on worth reading and next the phones would be hopping and God Billy, Billy is working hard now. While Billy Flynn chased leads, back at Talent Solicitors, Deirdre was left chasing her tail, as the stack of reports and interviews left in his wake continued to pile up. One of the first things she did was write to the Director of Public Prosecutions. She wanted the original book of evidence, the one used in Martin's case. Before a person can be sent for trial, the prosecution must hand over all relevant evidence collected by Garthi, even if it favours the defence. No big deal, she thought. No problem, she was told. But then, for some reason, the lawyers for the state changed their tune leaving Deirdre with no choice but to seek a court order forcing them to hand it over. Even with the book of evidence, it soon became clear that she still wasn't playing with a full deck. Once again, she had to go looking for more files. And by the time she was drip-fed the next batch, she was left even more frustrated than ever. By the time we got that discovery, there was a schedule attached to it in relation to documentation that no longer existed. So from 1997 to 2004, documents were either lost or destroyed that we had hoped to see. Now, in the schedule setting out statements, there was originally 371 statements taken. And of those 371, 266 were lost or destroyed. And what explanation were you given as to... What happened to that documentation? It would seem that there were two sets of documentation, one that was in the Gartha headquarters and uh, one set that was in Dunshotland, a Gartha station. Ultimately, what we got was was the documentation that was in the Gartha headquarters. The documents that were in Dunshotland were stored in the basement in Dunshotland. They were then asked to be moved the idea was that they were to be taken to Gartha headquarters. However, they were sent to Drogheda Gartha station. Now, the explanation was that Dunshockland was, the basement was rat infested. They were stored in black bags in the ladies' toilet in Drogheda Gartha station. And the explanation for their disappearance seems to be, from the evidence that was given, that they were seen as rubbish and disposed of. It's hard to believe that such important files were treated like that, stored in bin bags and tossed out as if they were nothing more than pieces of rubbish. 371 statements taken, 266 lost or destroyed, zero hope of finding out what was in them. Undeterred by the constant delays and setbacks, Deirdre ploughed on, refusing to dwell on what she didn't have and instead focusing on what she did have. We were again uh, inundated with documentation. It was voluminous uh, what we received, uh, despite the fact that it wasn't the full amount of documentation that we had hoped to get. 
And at a certain stage, our senior counsel, Hugh Hartnett, directed that myself and the junior counsel, Aaron Shearer, would go through all the documentation with a fine tooth comb and forensically. Now, you couldn't have undertook that during a normal working day. So it required us coming in at weekends, both of us. This went on for a number of months. And on one particular weekend, uh, I was comparing the witness statements that were in the book of evidence as against the witness statements that were in the documentation that was furnished to us. It became apparent that there was a number of witness statements uh, that were there that were not in the book of evidence. And in particular, three witnesses who were very significant witnesses for the prosecution in the original trial had made more statements than were in the book of evidence. The statements that Deirdre realised were missing from the original book of evidence belonged to the prosecution's three star witnesses. Remember them, Sean Riley, Martin Madden and John Shevlin. At trial, their evidence placed Dick's Ford Zephyr on Porterstown Lane during that crucial 15-minute window when it's believed Una was abducted. And now, Deirdre had something entirely different in her hands. On the 20th of October, 1971, just over a week after Una went missing, Martin Madden made his first statement to local Gardaí. It was four typewritten pages long. In it, he said that during the five minutes he was parked outside Sean Riley's house on Porterstown Lane, no car or any other person passed up or down the road. No car. However, five days later, on the same day Martin, Dick and Marty were hauled into Trimgar the station, Martin Madden made a complete U-turn on what he'd said before. In this statement, taken by Detective John Courtney and Inspector Hubert Reynolds from the Garda Murder Squad, he said he thought he saw Dick Donnelly's car pass by with Martin Conmey and Marty Kerrigan inside, from no car to Dick's car. In Sean Riley's original statement, he said that when Martin Madden pulled up outside his house that night, his car was facing away from Porterstown Lane, so even if a car had passed by, he said he wouldn't have been able to see it. But in a later statement, given to none other than Garda Brian Gilday, Sean Riley said they had a good view of the road. He too went on to place Dick Zephyr on the lane during the relevant time, with Marty Kerrigan as his front seat passenger. Young John Shevlin's statement evolved from not remembering any cars passing up or down Porterstown Lane to a detailed account of hearing Dick Donnelly's Zephyr. As Deirdre had just discovered, none of their original statements were in the book of evidence. If they had been, Marson's defence team would have surely challenged their evidence. The next step was to speak to the original legal team. And thankfully, uh, two of them were available. Uh, Maura Tian, who used to be the county registrar in Trim, and the ex-attorney general, Harry Whelan. He had been the junior counsel on the case. And we met and interviewed both of them. And Mauritian in particular became very emotional when she saw the statements. 
she was so upset that she, and she confirmed that she had never seen them before and had never been aware of them. And both herself and Harry Whelan both confirmed that if they had been aware of them, the way they would have ran the original case would have been hugely different. It would have allowed them undermine the three main prosecution witnesses. They would have been able to explore why there had been these different statements taken and the significance of them. You may be wondering why the three star witnesses changed their statements or given what you've heard so far, perhaps you know already. Sadly, Martin Madden and John Shevlin had both passed away by the time Martin's private investigator sought them out. Sean Riley was still alive though and in April 1998 he told Billy Flynn that the only reason he changed his statement was because he was beaten in Trimgard the station. He said he was very afraid when they brought him in. If he was slow in giving answers, he said they'd punch him. They told me I'd be blamed for Una's disappearance unless I told them what they wanted to know, he said. Sean Riley had no memory of saying anything about Dick Donnelly's car in his original statement, nor did he recall saying anything about Marty. Looking back at Sean Riley's performance in the witness box back in 1972, it's now clear he was trying to revert to his original statement, trying to make amends. The same can be said for the other two as well, especially Martin Madden, who you may remember was treated as a hostile witness by the prosecution. In the end, it was their later damning statements that went to the jury, with devastating consequences for Martin and Dick. Despite that, Martin doesn't bear any grudges. No, that, I was, that was a shock when I heard when I heard what they were saying. But she, like, poor Sean Riley went through the, the mill and then trim as well, you know. And he had to live. He had to live with that feeling. He was the cause of us getting locked up and Marty's life being taken. You know that was tough on him as well, Sean. You know. No, yeah. I, I had no hatred towards him, and uh, you know, because I realised what they went through afterwards. Now armed with the original statements of the three star witnesses, Deirdre and the rest of Martin's new legal team brought a fresh appeal. But even with their newfound facts, it was by no means an open goal for them. Lawyers for the state suggested the original statements may have been handed over at the time, perhaps in a more informal way than happens nowadays. The judges heard sworn evidence that they definitely were not. They also argued that even if the statements had been disclosed, it wouldn't have mattered because of Martin's false confession. With both sides having made their arguments, all that was left to do now was to wait for a decision. You could imagine the anticipation that there was after the body of work that we'd put in from 1997 uh, to 2010. And it wasn't a given that we were going to succeed. Uh, in fairness to the state, they put up a very good case and they had a fantastic legal team on the other side, Brendan Grehan being one of the top senior counsels uh, in the country. And uh, we were nervous. Everyone was nervous in the run-up to the judgment being given on the Monday morning. You can never be confident in court work, no matter how good your case is. And over the years of being a qualified solicitor since 1994, 
I've gone into cases where I think this is perfect. This is, we're going to win this only to find the reverse happens. It's a mercurial situation to be in. You don't know how it's going to play out. And even when you're in the middle of it, you still find it very difficult to call it. So we couldn't have said the night before that we were sure that we were going to win. On the 22nd of November, 2010, three judges filed into court to deliver judgment in Marson's appeal against his 38-year-old conviction. Flanked by his fellow judges, Mr Justice Adrian Hardiman cleared his throat and began reading the court's 46-page judgment. He started by outlining the background to the case. He spoke about Unalinsky's disappearance and the nub of the case against Martin Connemy and his friends. As he moved down through the judgment, he pointed out how important the evidence of the three star witnesses was. It was highly relevant, he said. According to the court, their original statements were radically inconsistent with later statements and with the evidence they gave at trial. And there was no doubt that the originals should have been handed over to the defence. As Mr Justice Hardyman approached the final page of that judgement, it soon became clear that something profound was about to happen. But Martin's sister Mary didn't have to wait. I knew it first. Really? Yeah. How? There was Hugh Hartnett and it was Michael O'Higgins. And then there was, um, I don't know what you call them, a junior again. I think they were both senior barristers at that stage. And there was a junior guy that I had met down in Ashburn who had kind of maybe preparing us a little bit and he was a really nice guy and he was sitting in the bench in front of me and that barrister I can't think of his name now he just, you know, the judgement was the bundle of papers and he just went to the very end and he just t- turned around to me and he said he's won it I was like, oh, and then I he's won it, and so everybody was like you know, and Martin is sitting over there and he doesn't know why you know, we knew I think you feel very numb in that moment. It almost feels surreal until you get to that point where it's clear that the words are said that the conviction has been quashed. And then you can allow yourself believe it. So there's a roller coaster of feelings that you have in a situation like that. The elation on the day to see him be able to address the press himself in his own words on how he felt and that at last he felt that justice was being done was marvellous. I've gone through a very difficult life being accused of a crime and completely innocent of. It has affected my health and has been difficult to get through most days. I have had to watch my two friends who were accused with me suffer as well for something they were innocent of, one of which has lost his life. I'm delighted that the decision of the court today has totally cleared my name. Thank you very much. The funny thing is that despite winning his appeal and having his conviction quashed, Martin didn't feel much like celebrating afterwards. It all felt unexpectedly hollow, almost meaningless. Sure, he had his moment in front of the cameras, just like Jerry Conlon did outside the Old Bailey, but unlike Jerry Conlon, 
Martin still didn't feel fully vindicated. He felt unbelievably let down by the state, physically and mentally tortured by agents of the state, and at the very least, he wanted somebody to say sorry. And so began the next gruelling leg of his path to justice, as Deirdre now recalls. In 2010, the conviction is quashed, but we don't get to the outcome of a miscarriage of justice until four years later. Again, very difficult for Martin in that intervening time to still be living with all of this. He was very conscious, and I'm sure he's spoken to you about it, uh, about how his son perceived him, for his son to know that this was uh, something that he did not do and could never have done. The third step, uh, poor Martin had many steps to take before he got to that particular point. The miscarriage of justice, after that you have uh, the right uh, to apply for damages. But again, for Martin, it wasn't really about the damages. It was about so much more. And I think that's where we come back to the fact that Sheila Cooney had such great instincts that she knew from the moment that she met this man that he was innocent and that it was an important piece of work for her, for the firm to take on, to get him to the point where he wanted to be. And it's really down to her and the legal team that took over from me at that point. I didn't have as much involvement uh, at that stage that they were able to negotiate with the state and to obtain what Martin really wanted, which was the apology. On the 16th of November, 2016, two years after the Court of Criminal Appeal declared a miscarriage of justice, Martin Conmey finally got what he was looking for. He was just 20 when Una Linsky went missing in October 1971. Now aged 65 and once again seated on a hard bench in the High Court, he perked up his ears as a lawyer for the state rose to his feet. In that moment, everything stood still as Martin was catapulted back to that dusty dock when a prosecutor urged a jury to convict him of murder. With his old pal Dick by his side and Marty in his heart, Martin basked in the words he'd fought so long and so hard to hear. Finally, he thought, I'm an innocent man. The Minister for Justice and Equality, on behalf of the state, wishes to formally acknowledge that Mr. Martin Conmey, who was convicted of certain offences in 1973 and served a term of imprisonment, was a victim of a miscarriage of justice. The state apologises unreservedly to Mr. Conmey. The state regrets the pain and loss experienced by Mr. Conmey as a result of his imprisonment and has taken steps to pay appropriate compensation to him. Seven years on, on the 52nd anniversary of her disappearance, Angartha Siakana launched a full review into the death of Una Linsky. The Guard investigation to the murder of Una Linsky remains an open investigation. The future course of the investigation will be determined by the findings of the Serious Crime Review. 
Detective Superintendent Des McTiernan was appointed as the lead. The serious crime review team with members of the local investigation team in the Mead Division have met with the families of Una Linsky, Martin Kerrigan, Dick Donnelly and Martin Connolly himself. As well as looking into the circumstances of what happened to Una, the cold case unit also announced plans to take another look at the killing of Marty Kerrigan. The serious crime review team have been appointed to carry out a full review of the investigation into the murder of Una Linsky and Martin Kerrigan. The review was ordered by the Garda Commissioner Drew Harris, who had written a letter of apology to Martin the previous year. A full review involves the independent examination of all material gathered in the course of all relevant current and past investigations. The investigation is now well underway, and at the time of making this podcast, we're still awaiting its findings. After all these years, the fact that it's happening at all is a relief to everybody. But for those still seeking justice for their loved ones, is it enough? Marty Kerrigan had done no wrong, and he lost his life over it. The scars of what happened to Dick Donnelly and Trim Garda Station never left him, and sadly, he passed away a few years ago without ever receiving an apology. Their families would like to see a public inquiry. And despite all the bad blood that has flowed down Porterstown Lane over the years, everyone is united in wanting justice for Una Linsky. Her killer got away. Nobody really looked for him. Looking back, you can't help but feel that the suspicious dark-coloured Ford Zodiac with the middle-aged male driver, as seen by many witnesses, including Una Linsky's own cousin, Porrick Gotten, holds the key to solving this case. You have to wonder how hard it would have been to track down a car like that in 1971. They were a rare sight, even rarer on a country road like Porterstown Lane. Who knows what the cold case unit will unearth, But the reality is that until Una's killer is found, she'll never truly rest in peace. Those wrongly caught in the crossfire will never find peace either. Just like everybody else, Martin would love to see Una's killer brought to justice. His dear mother Eileen lived to see him being vindicated. She never doubted him. And before she died, she spoke about all the innocent lives ruined by this and hoped one day the truth would set them all free. Ah, should their them souls are gone to heaven and God is wondering why he brought them up and left the bad ones below. And I say that Una tell herself what happened to herself. I'm still waiting. All five episodes of Inside the Crime can now be found on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. We're really confident that someone out there knows something or saw something that could help advance Una Linsky's murder investigation. If you are that person, please contact the Garda Confidential line on 1800 one. You can also email us at insidethecrime at newstalk.com. It's never too late. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashling Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. Thanks for listening to this story. As always, we hope we did it justice. <laughs>